Well, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 78. It's not exactly in the middle of the Bible, but it's pretty close, and uh, we'll be spending some time in there today. Um, As a history teacher and a history buff and somebody who enjoys history, today's a pretty important day. Today's June 6th, not 2021, but June 6th, 1944. It was a pretty important day. Uh, This was the day that the Allies stormed Normandy. Um, to begin the end of World War II in Europe. So uh, I can't help but want to think and talk about that. But um, alas, that's not what I'm paid for and not why I'm here today. (laughs) So if you want to hit me up after church, we can talk about some D-Day stories and things like that. But I am going to talk about a little bit of history to start us with. And I couldn't find a way to tie D-Day to this, today's sermon, um, but um, I did find another story. So hopefully you've paid close attention in history class, because uh, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So at the time of its creation, it was considered one of the biggest ships ever made. As a matter of fact, it was to be one of a whole slew of ships. This was a flagship It was a large ship. It was beautiful. Some would even say it's elegant. It was meant to usher in a new era of traveling across the ocean in style. The ship, because of its size, was deemed unsinkable by its designers. Unsinkable. That was until its maiden voyage. On calm seas, the ship sank quickly. Because of the invincibility of the ship, the crew was not trained on what to do if the ship were to sink. The ship was loaded down with lots of people and cargo. All the cargo was lost, and many of the lives were lost. Now, there seems to be an important message here, right? Okay? Don't say that something man-made is unsinkable, or something can never be destroyed, no man-made thing. That seems like a pretty easiest, easy and obvious lesson, isn't it? So let me ask you this. What was the name of that ship? Titanic. Nope, it wasn't the Titan. No, this was way before that. This is the ship, it was known as the Vasa. In 1620, the Swedish ship known as the Vasa was the biggest ship in the world. The king of Sweden said, I want a grandiose warship that also can host parties, because what king wouldn't want that, right? And so on its maiden voyage, laid it down with cannons and elegant carvings and fine food, on a crystal clear day, the ship sank for no reason. And people would say, what? That makes no sense. Everyone on board, almost everyone, died. And we hear those phrases of, never again, we will never forget. Well, that was 1620, and by 1912, when the Titanic was to sail, we had forgotten. And I know what some of you will say, okay, that was 400 years, I'm doing the math in my head, 400 years between the Vasa and the Titanic. Well, you're wrong, there was another ship, the Texing was a Chinese ship. It was over 200 feet long. It had masts that were 80 feet high. That's eight stories high. And the Chinese said, this ship is unsinkable. 1,800 people boarded the ship along with almost all of their possessions because they were going to go on this grand tour to Indonesia. And on the way there, calm seas, the ship sank. And all but about 100 of them died. So we we see these stories and we go, okay, interesting coincidences. Someone brought up the Titan, which is another ship that sank that was supposed to be unsinkable. We see these stories, but yet what do we see is we see that nobody learned anything from these stories. These stories have been around, the shipbuilding stories. We see the Titanic story and we say, oh yeah, well, they they were stupid because they, they should have known better. In actuality, are we that different? Have we learned from our history. A philosopher by the name of George Santayana is probably most famous for this phrase, not for his philosophizing, but he said, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. As history teachers, we say those who can't learn from history are doomed to repeat the class. (laughs) 
See, history is argued to be a good way to know what's coming in the future. But history can only be profitable if we look at it realistically. It does us no good to look at history and go, well, those were the good old days. Because honestly, yes, there might have been some good times in there, but to say it was all good is to no longer tread in history, but into fiction. See, the thing is, all of history, ever since Genesis 3, is marred by sin. All of it. There was no good old days. Okay, there was a good old days, but then Adam and Eve messed it up. And we will be into the good old days in the future. Oh, my water doesn't want to stay up, so we'll leave it there. See, this is where Psalm 78 helps us, because Psalm 78 doesn't gloss over Israel's mistakes. Instead, it brings them out in a way that says, don't be like them. And what's cool about this is the way Asaph is, is portraying it in this psalm. He's saying, you all know the stories, but you need to remind each other so that you don't go down the same path. Learn from the past. So today, we're going to look at how each generation of believers is, it's important, it's, it's crucial that they avoid the sins of the past. And the only way to do that is to have the current generation tell them about their mistakes, tell them about their failures, because in our failures and our mistakes, it points to God's grace. And that's the only thing that will save us. That's the only thing that will get us through it all. So here's our big idea. God has given his church the responsibility for passing the gospel on to the next generation. And every single one of us has a part to play in this. So God has given us the responsibility. He says, it is your job to pass the gospel on to the next generation and the next generation. See, the Bible says we're commissioned to make disciples of all nations, but it also says we're to make disciples of all generations. So as much as we go out into the world, we also need to go through our world. All generations need to know. See, this is not a call to old ways of doing things or ways that we grew up doing things. Instead, this is, because we need to understand, churches have always been in flux. Things have always been changing on how we do church. We don't do church anywhere near like the Apostle Paul did church, or like the Middle Ages did church, or the Reformation, or the Great Awakening, or the early 19th century, or the Jesus Freaks movement, or even what we did 10 years ago. So it's always been in flux. But this is not also a call to say, well, all new is the way to go. See, the thing is, we get hung up on how we do church and what we do and what, where we do it and what that looks like instead of what the bedrock is. And that's what Psalm 78 brings out. The bedrock is who is God. That's first and foremost where we need to find our identity. Because the thing we need to understand is that we as believers need to share our failures and our successes because both point to the Lord. When we fail and don't measure up, it points to the need of a Savior. When we succeed, it points to the grace of God. And so this is what we are to be known for because the worst news in the world is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the best news in the world, but God the free gift of God is Jesus. So we've got to have these two together and it has to inform all that we do. So what is the purpose of this psalm? Well, he makes it really clear in the part that Tony read. He says specifically, we're going we're gonna to look at Israel's history so that we don't do it again. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, it's very redundant, isn't it? Israel goes, oh, we've sinned, I'll never do it again. And then the next chapter, what do they do? They sin. Oh, we'll never do it again. We learned our lesson, Lord. And then they sin. There's this cycle that continues to go. And what, is, what, what Asaph's argument is, is he's saying, it's not that you don't know what the Bible says. It's that you don't understand. You have to put it into practice and live it out. And the best way to do that is to have people that have done it for years remind those who haven't how to do it. And the, and the potential disasters, the potential pitfalls. So one author says, the obvious intention of the psalm is to instruct the hearers to obedience, to help them know how to obey. But there's another part to this. 
Another part is it's also meant to kind of warm us and help us see how gracious and compassionate God is. Because throughout this entire time of Israel, throughout the entire time, God doesn't just go, I'm done, you're out of here, I'm going to go pick a new nation. He sticks with them. He continues to provide. Literally, as they're complaining about their food, he provides them food the next day. You know, I, I feel like I'm an okay parent. But if my kids complained about food every day for a week, I might try a day off. <laughs> and, and I don't think that I'm totally the worst sinner on the earth, and I think there's some people that are laughing right now that would probably do the same thing. <laughs> but that's kind of the picture that we have. And, and, and yet God is continually pointing them to the fact he is compassionate. And at the end of the psalm, we see he even points them forward to Christ. He says, I am gonna, I'm going to bring a king who will not let you down. So let's look at this psalm. This psalm is the second longest psalm in the entire Psalter, the entire book of Psalms. It is 1,221 words long. The longest psalm, of course, is Psalm 119, which has 176 verses. This one just has 72 the third place psalm only has 53. So this is kind of, you know, this isn't varsity level length, but it's close. And of those 1,221 words, 121 words in this psalm refer to God, whether by name or by the pronoun talking about God. That's one out of every 10 words in this song are pointing to God. The second most common word in here is the word Israel. And so I think what we need to understand is we need to understand that this is about God's interaction with Israel. And so in its original context, this is a stir up the nation of Israel to remember where they've been and teach future generations not to go there, to learn from their mistakes. This is a hard psalm to classify. Last week we talked about how there are five types of psalms. Last week was a lament. This week's psalm is, maybe it's because it's so long, or maybe it's because it's got some weird structure to it. It tells you the point of the psalm at the beginning instead of the end. People have had a hard time classifying this. And they say, well, it's a mix of this, it's a mix of that. Well, we're going to let Asaph tell us what it is. If you look at your psalm, at the very beginning, there's a little subscript before. Some versions of the Bible will say verse zero. It's actually a part of the psalm. It's the title. And it says right there, it says, a maskil of Asaph. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I know people that write books that are, and in those books, many of them believe that this word means a wisdom song or a wisdom word. There's other possible ideas, but that's the most common one. So this is a wisdom psalm. So what he's saying is he's saying this is a way to be wise, to learn this lesson. So as we dig into this very long psalm, I'm not going to read every single word. I timed it out, and that's like eight and a half or nine minutes. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to point you two different parts, and I encourage you to read the whole thing on your own. But if you've ever read the Old Testament, this is the Old Testament kind of synopsis explaining what happened. And he goes through it two separate times. And so I'm just going to try to get to the, the, the heart of this issue and not eat into your lunchtime, okay? So here we go. Some of the repeated words in this. We see this idea of memory. Four times he says, forget or don't forget or remember in verses 7, 11, 34, and 42. We also see that he repeats the word rebellion or sin or iniquities in verses 17, 32, 40, and 56. What he's arguing here is he's saying, when you forget what God has done, you are sowing the seeds or you're even rebelling immediately. He's tying these two together. He's saying, when you forget what God has done, the next step is sin. That's the next step in your relationship to God. And so we have to constantly be reminding us of what God has done. Not only do we see this forgetting, remembering, and sin connection, we also see warnings in here. There are six separate warnings in this psalm. And every single warning is to not forget, to not stop telling each other what the Bible says. We see this in verse 10, in verse 17, in verse 32, 36, 40, and 56. A good teacher repeats themselves over and over again. A good teacher repeats themselves over and over again. Okay, maybe not good, but I'm, I'm work up to it. This idea of repeating yourself over and over again is so that you get the point. 
And the point here is don't forget and then teach those who come after you. The Apostle Paul understood this. In 1 Corinthians 10, referring to the story of Israel, he says, now these things, all of the exodus and all of the stuff in the Old Testament, took place as examples for us that we might not desire to do the evil that they did. He even goes a little farther and he says, now these things have happened to them as an example, but that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Scripture's telling us we need to read these stories and see that we're not that different from them. And we are, we are on the verge of falling if we forget what God has done. Because when we forget what God has done, we're forgetting who God is and we look for other gods. Our hearts love to wander after fake gods. And this is the temptation that we've had from the very beginning. So we are to warn each other of this. We are to constantly bring ourselves back to God's word, to who God is. And we're to train up our children in this as well. See, our lives have a structure. And, and, and even though we don't like to admit it, our lives are a lot like Israel. God does something great. We rebel and forget about it. God gets our attention and God pours out his grace. That's the picture of what we see here. And actually, this is the structure of the psalm. Asaph has structured his psalm this way. The first eight verses that Tony read are the charge, teach future generations. And then we see a cycle, go, we have the cycle going back and forth with what comes next. The, the second point, God provides miraculously. He says this, and then we get rebellion, invokes God's wrath, and then God's graciousness. And then Asaph goes back through it again. And so this is, a, this is a circular cycle back and forth. And what he's saying is, anybody who's read their Old Testament knows Israel was stuck in this cycle. And they were stuck in this constant. They were not able to break out. And Asaph lays the, the blame of this right at the feet of the generations that have experienced it. You've forgotten. You've forgotten. So the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at the first eight verses. This is the charge to the future generation, or to, to teach future generations. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that have been heard, we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. Arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." And they that should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So this first section is the point of the psalm. And I love that Asaph puts it there at the beginning because he's writing a really long psalm. And I wonder if people wouldn't get to it. So he starts right off and he says, look, as I go through this psalm, look at what I'm teaching. Remind future generations about what you've experienced. Tell them the goodness of the Lord because it's not the goodness of you or the way you've done things because it's marred by sin. Instead, it's the goodness of the Lord in response to our sin. So teaching is only possible if you have listened and it's effective only if you tell others. He says, I will teach in verse two. He says, I will open my mouth in a parable. This just means a proverb or a wise saying also matches with what we believe this psalm is, being a wisdom psalm. Then it says these dark sayings. That sounds very like kind of weird sounding, but basically a dark saying means a riddle. It's something that's hard to understand. And what he's saying here is he's saying it's, it's hard to understand, but wisdom can cut right through it. He's saying we can see what the truth is and we can get it by looking here at this psalm. And then this word generation is, is mentioned several times, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But this is the idea of passing the baton on to the next group. It's about saying, here is what you need to be able to step up. And then in verse 4, it says, Do not, we will not hide them from their children. 
And this is important because it's easy for us to want to skip the bad parts. We want to skip the things. And, and maybe we go, well, if, if, I, if I skip the parts that were disappointing where I failed, then maybe people are going to think that's okay that I failed. No, that's not, that's not the point. The point in your failing is to show how great Christ is that he never failed. The point in your failing is that you are a terrible Savior. And Christ is a great Savior. And so we need, to, we need to make sure when we're teaching those who are young or immature in the faith, we need to teach them that there's going to be times of failure, but there's a great God that forgives. It reminds me, we went, to the, we went and visited the ark. There's a, a life-size replica of the ark in um, Kentucky. And inside the ark, you're walking around, and they have this one room that's out of place, because it's supposed to be like you're actually in the ark. And so there's animals and all sorts of stuff like that. But when you go to this one room, it's all of these picture books of Noah's ark. And they're all the precious moments picture books, and they're all cutesy and so on. And the point of the exhibit is, you know, most of the world population was drowned. Most of them died. Most of the animals weren't cute and walking on the boat, and that was it, because the rest of the animals died. And that's a story that we need to get. And, and I think that illustrates what we, we like to do sometimes. We like to kind of whitewash the story because we don't want to deal with the hard stuff. The hard stuff is what Christ came to deal with. The hard stuff is the stuff that points to how great of a Savior he is. And we need to not sugarcoat it to our children or to future generations because they're going to deal with that stuff. And it's important that we get that. And I'm as bad at that as before. I, 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 did, I haven't done that. I have not done a good job of, you know, telling the whole story. Maybe when you're older, I would say. Then it says, they set their hope in God and kept, keep his commandments. This is the focus. Not only is it enough to hope in God, but then also follow his commands. And this is the connection here that we have to see. It's not enough to know the stories of God, but you have to live them out. It's not enough to know that Jesus died for your sins, but you have to live in light of that. And we've talked about that when we went through the gospel recently, is that the gospel needs to be applied to your life. It can't just be something that's like, check, I've got my gospel badge on, move on. Instead, it's, I have the gospel in all of me. Okay? However, many will not embrace this. Many of us, we see this not as a life-giving, heart-affecting truth. Instead, it's kind of something we just put on when we want to. I'm going to put on my Christian clothes now, and then I'm going to go and do my worldly thing some other time without my Christian clothes. That's not what, is, what Asaph's talking about. He's saying, if you believe it, it affects what you do in response. And then look at this. It says, their, hearts, their heart was not steadfast. Their spirit was not faithful to God. When we, when we, when we, do not, when we, we don't allow ourselves to believe it and have it affect our lives, we actually are preaching a lie with our lives. When we say, I believe Jesus is Lord of all, and then we go outside and we act like it's not the case, we are actually false teaching. We're, we're apostates. So verse 8 is the negative. He says, you should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. And verse 7 is the positive. He says, you should learn the truth about God and then act accordingly. Trust it in your whole heart and then show it in your obedience. That's that, keep his commands. If each generation were to take this to heart, we wouldn't have to teach this, but we are constantly returning to the things we know are not true and will not save. So seven and eight show this, this picture of Israel's story. Notice the story is not just told because it's history. It's told so that you go, let's learn from this. And isn't that the knock that most people have on history classes? It's, we're just learning stuff that happened in the past. Well, a good history teacher is going to take the stuff that happened in the past and teach you how to move forward into the future. And that's what Asaph does. So we've been talking about generations, and, and even as we read this, we can see contextually it's talking about old Israelites talking to young Israelites. So is this sermon only for the people in the room who've been around the sun more times than the other people? Is it for the aged in the room? Is it for the elderly? Is that the only way to look at this? And the answer is no. See, Israel was unique because Israel was a nation chosen by God, and so there were generations that would come up that needed to be taught in the nation of God, Israel. The church is not Israel. 
The church is a very unique body. As a matter of fact, we've got people in this room that are babies, and we've got people in this room that are elders, because how we interact, our generations that we interact in are not necessarily based on age, but on maturity. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I would love to give you something more, but you're still infants needing milk. Now, was Paul saying, we left the kids in here, there's no nursery in the Corinthian church? No, what Paul's saying is, is that some of you are babies when it comes to following the Lord. Some of you are spiritually immature. And so don't hear this as this is only for the old people in the room because that's not what this is talking about for us. This is also talking about those of you that have brand new believers. You've been a believer for six months or you've been a believer for 60 years. There's a connection there. There's generations. There's all sorts of overlap in this. See, as, as, as your pastor and as a parent, it's my goal in life to teach my kids and to teach you to do better than I did. I am not the standard. Christ is the standard. I come really, really far away from it. And so my goal with my raising of my kids and shepherding this flock is to point you to Christ and say, do better, fail less, sin less, love Christ more. And that's the picture that we can all teach each other if we're in Christ, whether we are a brand new believer or we've been a believer for a long time. You're an 80-year-old who's been a believer for six months. You're a baby. You need the help of other believers. So get this, an 80-year-old who's been a believer for six months might need to be taught by the 16-year-old who's been a believer for six years. Think about that. And some of you in here, you've been believers for 60 years. I need you to teach me. I haven't been a believer for 60 years. So that's the, that's the picture that we're seeing here. So how do we do this? Well, I didn't want to save the application to the end, so I'm going to hit some of it right here. We do this by teaching Scripture to each other. And the first way we do it is we teach the next generation who God is. What that means is we teach them who God is. Notice I did not start with teach them what to do. The Bible doesn't start with here's the rules and then we'll teach you about God. It says here's God and then these rules flow from a changed heart. So the first thing we do is we say this is what God is like. And we teach this to each other because we constantly forget. We have to not only preach the gospel to ourselves, we need to preach it to each other. The second thing, we teach the next generation what God has done. It says in here, glorious deeds of the Lord, the wonders he has done. Now, just so you don't think again, I'm whitewashing this, some of those wondrous deeds were plagues of Egypt. Others of them were things like the manna and the quail and the promised land. All of this must be retold. We must tell of God's works. And then third, we need to teach the next generation what God has said. And this is where it says laws and commands. This Bible, this book, must be at the center of all we do. There's nothing worse than having a Bible study that is 95% fellowship and hanging out and talking about how much we hate masks or how much we like this movie or how much we enjoy this food or this place on vacation and then we spend five minutes in God's word. That's exactly backwards of what we should be. Remember, the Bible is not an add-on. Matthew 24, 35 says, his words will never pass away. So when we talk about God's words, we are talking about what we are going to experience for all of eternity because his word will not pass away. And I love that about that. So I found a story about this that I thought kind of fit. There's a story about French farmers who lived in France, hence the fact they're French, in the 1800s. And this is a story called The 100-Year-Old Soup. Now, I'm not a soup fan, but this story is kind of unique. During a time of starvation, they, they, they started with a bowl of soup, and it was basically water and whatever spare vegetables they had, they threw it in the bowl. And each week, they would throw a little bit of what they had in there. Some weeks it would be some carrots, maybe an onion. Sometimes it would simply be dandelions. Threw them in there with some water. But it was always simmering. And it was always ready to go when anybody came. It was always ready no matter what type of famine was going on. The soup never stopped simmering. It was always there. 
When the oldest daughter of the family would set up for, uh, get left to set up her house, her dowry would include a pot of the soup. They would scoop some out, put it in a pot, say, here you go, put that on the back, keep it simmering, it's for you. When, Amer- when French immigrants came to America on their ships, they brought some of this 100-year-old soup. As a matter of fact, in parts of South Carolina, the 100-year-old soup is still being eaten to this day. See, the Church of Jesus Christ is like that 100-year-old soup. It's been boiling for 2,000 years. Ingredients have been added. The taste has changed a little bit over time. But it's ever old but always new. It is constant. It's a life-giving gift for all the generations that preceded us to right now. This church is an example of that. But it needs constant replenishment so that we can feed off of it. But you notice what's not on this list. What is not done with the soup. You can't ever go back to taste the soup from, 400, from 40 years ago. That's gone. But some of the flavors are still there. See, we, we can't return to what the soup used to taste like, but we can use our flavors, what we have experienced, to help flavor it now and create something new. It may taste a little bit like it did before, but it's even better now because we've been able to add to it. So when we teach the next generation, whether it's young people, physical age, or whether it's young believers, spiritual maturity, what God is like, what he's done, and what he said, we are leaving a legacy that's not physical. We're leaving a legacy that is spiritual that will go on way past us. Because ultimately, the church of God is not this building. It's the people that make it up. So let's look at how Asaph deals with this. God provides miraculously. God provides miraculously. Now, this is the first cycle that we see, and we see it in verses 9 through 16 and verses 40 through 55. And so, really, the idea here is that in spite of the rebellion, God keeps blessing Israel. So in verses 9 through 16, we see four stories told. The first one is God giving of the law, verse 10. The second one is the parting of the Red Sea, verse 13. Next one we see is God giving them provision in the wilderness and guidance in the wilderness. Remember, he's leading them through the wilderness with fire by night and a cloud by day, verse 14. And then we see God's provision of water and food, verses 15 and 16. Now we see an interesting group brought in here, the very first line of verse 9. It says, the Ephraimites. Now, who were these people? Well, Joseph had two sons, and one of them's name was Ephraim. So these are the descendants of the tribe of Ephraim. This tribe did not come at some point to help the nation of Israel. We don't know when that happened, but for whatever reason, they didn't show up. And the reason why, and Asaph makes it clear, he says the reason why they didn't show up was because they forgot who God was. They were thinking, oh, we're not strong enough, we're not brave enough. But they'd forgotten, if God can handle walking through water, the Red Sea parting, he can handle whatever small army that this king of this world or this area can bring up. And throughout this, God shows care for Israel. In verses 40 through 55, we see that God tells, that Asaph tells of God's signs and wonders against Egypt in verses 44 through 51. We see him in verse 53 talk again about the Red Sea. I mean, this is formative. This is Israel's big deal. And then we see in verse 55, God's victory over Israel's enemies and the giving of the land. So you see, Asaph's just bringing to mind the things they all know. Here's our combined history. Because this idea in Asaph's mind of remember, remember just doesn't mean call to mind and go, oh, well, that was a cool story, let's move on. He's saying, no, because I remember, I am going to act in response to this. Look at all that he did, the exodus, the plagues, the conquest of the promised land. And yet Israel still doesn't believe. God did all of this to bless them. In spite of their prolonged rebellion, God still fought for them. In verse 42, referencing back to verse 7, he said, the the crux of the matter, for if redemption is forgotten, faith and love will not last long. See, that's the thing. When we forget what we were brought out of, where we are now becomes the focus, and it will never match up to what we think we deserve or what we want. There's a story that um, 
philosopher, scholar D.A. Carson tells. And it's about um, the three generations uh, of, of believers when they came to the new world. And he talked about the Mennonites, and he talked about the Puritans, and he talked about other groups. And it's a very apt explanation of what happens in churches, in families, in collections of believers. The first group, generation one, believes the gospel. They come out of sin into this brand new light, and they are on fire for the gospel. They believe it in their hearts, they preach it, they talk about it, they have all the outward expressions of it, they get it, because they remember what they came out of. And some of you are like that. You remember what it's like to be a non-Christian, and you have come out of that. Praise be to God. That's you. What happens, though, in history is that the next generation, generation two, gets a assumptive gospel. They assume the gospel. And what happens in this is that first generation, they go, we came out of this sin. We came out of this terrible situation. We know what it's like to be not saved. We see the difference. But that second generation is only raised in the second part, in the gospel part, the generation of they don't know what it's like to be not saved. And so what ends up happening, if that first generation doesn't teach it diligently to their kids, that second generation assumes the gospel. And by assuming the gospel, I mean it's outward and it doesn't get to the heart, which is exactly what we see here with the Israelites. They said, oh yeah, we do all the Israelite things. Well, do you believe in God? Oh yeah, I guess. But if it doesn't affect you to your heart, that assumed gospel is very dangerous. Because when you get to the third generation... This third generation comes along and they look at the second generation and they go, you don't actually believe this stuff that you're saying. You just have the outward experience of it. So we're going to deny the gospel and go a different route. And this cycle has played itself out over and over and over again in the history of the church. If we are not diligent to teach the generation coming after us the gospel and point to it and go back to it, over and over and over again, history tells us it's going to lead to a church that'll be gone in a generation. Now, if it's a perfect situation where we could just plug this in, it would be great. Obviously, children, the second and third generation, still have a choice. But we as believers are to do all that we can while it is today to point them to the gospel. So this is what he's doing. He's saying, here is what the gospel is. God has provided. Let's get to it. And then we get to the, the bad news part. And this is where the Israelites decide they're going to rebel. Rebellion invokes God's wrath. And this is for verses 17 through 32 and verses 56 through 64. God responds to this rebellion. Verses 17 through 32, we see stories retold. We see God's provision of water and food again in verses 23 through 39. And then we see God's judgment of sin in verses 30 and 31. What's interesting here is it, it talks about God providing the food. In verse 23, it talks about the skies opened up from heaven and rained down manna. Manna is uh, a flaky substance, white like coriander seed. The word manna means, what is this? Which is a great name for it. Right? it, it it's just wafers that they would make into bread. And, and I didn't even realize this until I was studying this again. I probably lost it at some point. Because I thought, oh, it just tastes like bread. It's probably pasty. It's kind of like a really gross protein you know, bar or something like that. But that's not what it says in the Bible. It says, with honey flavor. How sweet is God? No pun intended. How sweet is God in that this could have just tasted like paste? He's like, deal with it. But instead he goes, I'm going to make that taste good for you. Right? And then he sends them quail, which I hear it tastes like chicken. But, <laughs> but honestly, he could have made it, I mean, he could have made it something gross. He could have sent something that would have been disgusting to eat. And it's getting close to lunch, so I'm not going to give you examples. <laughs> but what we see here is it seems like the more, we, more God gives us, the less we appreciate it. Because it says, and yet they sinned more. Verse 18 says, they tested God in their heart. And this is really us, isn't it? It's not, look what God did. It's, what have you done for me lately? You only gave me one? I wanted two. Come on. 
See, we put God on probation and we say, God, I'll believe you if you do fill in the blank. But even throughout all of this, like I said earlier, God doesn't stop feeding them. Then verses 56 through 64, we see God's rejection of his sinful people and the ark taken captive. This is verses 59 through 64. This is referencing when he allowed the Philistines to conquer them and take the ark. They tested and rebelled against the Most High. And then look at this line. It says, he utterly rejected Israel. That's scary. That's scary that Israel had done all of this and he rejected them. But even in that, he saved a remnant. He saved a small group and said, I will still care for you. Now, if the story ends there, this is not good news. This is very, very bad news. But the story doesn't end there. We get to the gospel here. The next point we see is that God responds in mercy. This is verses 33 through 39 and 65 through 72. God responds in mercy. Verses 33 through 39, just that, that's the entire point of the passage. Verses 38, 38 and 39, yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger, did not stir up his wrath. He remembered they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. They repented and they sought after him. But ironically, they go right back to it, don't they? They go right back to it. They sin, they punished, they repent, then they sin again. And yet he's compassionate does not destroy them. Verses 65 through 72, we see David being chosen as king. It says, the Lord awoke as from sleep. Sometimes God doesn't appear to be paying attention, but many times it's because he's working behind the scenes and we can't see him. But God stirs himself up and reacts in mercy as opposed to judgment. Notice here, the king comes from David. David is from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim would have been the perfect place to take the king because Joseph was, a, was the chosen one, right? It was supposed to, it made sense. Joseph was the one that had the double portion. Why not have the king come from there? But instead, it comes from Judah. And then look, it says, it will be a shepherd to Jacob's people, shepherding them and guiding them with a skillful hand. The term shepherd was used throughout the, the time of Israel, used for priests and nobles and judges. Ezekiel actually says, don't be a bad shepherd, be a good shepherd. Ultimately, he raises up David, who had been a shepherd, to point us forward to what Jesus said as, I am the good shepherd. And this is Jesus saying, I am the fulfillment of David. See, this pattern, this blessings of God, the sin of Israel, the anger of God, the repentance of Israel, the forgiveness of God, this pattern is continually going until the coming of Christ. But even then, we're still in the pattern, aren't we? We're still stuck in this pattern. But praise be to God, there's an end coming. The end coming is when Jesus comes back for his bride. When Jesus comes back for the church, that's the end of the cycle. And praise be to God that when we're all going to do a reunion 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now in heaven, we're going to be running around in brand, or on the new heaven, new earth. We're going to be running around in brand new bodies with no sin, with no cycle of sin. It's going to be amazing. So this psalm, just like last week's psalm, just ends. It says, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand, period. What, what's next? Is this a continuation into next week's psalm? Nope. What's next? And really, what the psalmist is doing here is he's saying, the story's not finished. The story's not done. This is the beginning. And for us, we have to continue the story. Asaph wrote all, wrote all the way up to what he knew because he was in the time of David. He didn't know what was coming next. We're there. Tell your story. Share your story. The next generation of believers does not need our way of doing things, they need us. They need all of us. They need to learn from our mistakes. They need to learn from our successes. They need to learn about our God. Asaph was addressing the nations not living out what they have been experiencing. They'd forgotten. And when they were telling it, they were not telling it enough and they were not living it enough. So what are the applications for us? 
Well, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you're not in Christ, the application is Christians, Christian life is one of belonging. We belong to God's family first, and we belong to a part of his church. It just turns out that every single week at 10 a.m. we have a family meeting, and we encourage you to come join. This is, a, this is the picture of multicultural, because right now in this world, there are people gathering across the world in the name of Christ. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter where you are in the world, it's happening. What a family. Second thing for a non-believer is that if you don't know Christ, it, this isn't come get cleaned up and then we'll accept you. No, come as you are. Let's have you meet Jesus and he'll take care of the cleaning up. This is not a group of people that we all worked really hard and cleaned ourselves up. No, we're wretches. But praise be to God, amazing grace that he has extended to us. So if you're a believer and you're not plugged in, I'll just tell you, doing things on your own is hard. Doing things on your own is difficult. You were never meant to go it alone. And praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you alone, but there's all these other people filled with the Holy Spirit that you should be around as well. So join a life group. Join a church. Join a Bible study. If you don't know how to figure out how to do that, come see me. We've also got like announcement sheets out there on the wall that have all sorts of information about how to get plugged in. Do it. It's so much easier when you have people around you. And then finally, for those of you here that are plugged in, you are members of this church, share it. Share what you've been through. Mature believers are helped to help others become mature believers. Ask yourself, when I'm at church, when I'm in life group, when I'm at Bible study, what are my conversations pointing to? Are they pointing to my political tribe? Are they pointing to my ideology? Are they pointing to me? Or are they pointing to Christ? See, that's the focus we need to have. And then last, get, get in a life group. Get in a life group with others who are not the same age as you, spiritually or physically, because we need that cross-culture, cross cross-generation, cross-ages, so that that way we can all learn from each other. And if that doesn't work for you, you can go to the top of the level, the top of the heap, and go work in the children's ministry. Because honestly, that's doing the both. You've got babies that are baby believers in there as well. So go do it. So in conclusion, there are themes that all Christians for all times have had to deal with. One is our failures, and two is God's faithfulness. No matter how often we fail, he is faithful, long-suffering, patient, and oh, so gracious with us. The fact that he bears with us tells us of his marvelous grace. This was not a fact just for Israel, but it's for us today, right here, right now. This psalm reminds us of this truth. It's meant to stir us up, not only to share what God has done in history, but what God has done in our story, and share it with each other. So share your lives, these lives that have been sweetened by what God has done. Make them the focus, because nothing is better than while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for those words, Lord. Thank you that, Lord, you are a God that forgives. You're a God that reached out to us when we were rebelling against you. And Lord, this is the best news in the world. So I pray that we would share it and that we would continue to share it until our last breath, until you take us home to be with you. Lord, I pray that it would be something that we were known for, that we would be the group that shares our experiences, not because we're something great, not because we figured out how to get through it, but because the God that we're holding on to for dear life has never let go of us. So I praise you that that's who you are. Lord, guide us and give us the direction to go with that. In your name, amen. Now, if you would, we're going to celebrate communion. If you would pull out your communion elements. If you need to go grab them, I, I will talk for a moment before we start them. Remembering that Christ died in our place, Christ died for us, we do this to remember the fact that he did this. Now, if you're here with us today and, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is not for you, but it can easily be for you. What I mean by that is that this is 
This is, we're a part of God's family because we're found in Christ, and so we're remembering this. If you want to be a part of God's family and be in Christ, it's as simple as acknowledging that he's your Lord and Savior right now, and you can partake in your first communion with us, and we would be honored to have you do that. So Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us um, instructions in this. So if you would, if you want to grab the, the top bit, it's clear or kind of purplish on some of them, and go ahead and get your bread out, and then we'll do the juice here in a second. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you will take that now. Heavenly Father, what an incredible gift that you've given us in your Son. What an incredible, unearned gift. And yet, we want to, with that gift in mind, rise up and thank you so much for what you've done. How easily we forget that Friday on Calvary and what was laid on your son on our behalf, in our place. Lord, it should be something that we think of every single second of every day, but yet we easily forget so I, I praise you that you inspired the Apostle Paul to, to put these words here in your book so that we can remember. So I pray, Lord, that this next month as, as we go out, whether it be on vacations or just the everyday, whatever we're doing, that, Lord, we would remember what you have done, not only on the cross on our behalf, but also what you've done in our lives. And, Lord, help us to not keep it to ourselves but share it with everyone. Declare it, Lord, in your name. Amen.